The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. Hey, welcome to The Dark Word. I'm your host, Philip Fricasi, and um, my guest today is an old friend, Laird Barron. Laird is an expat Alaskan. He is the author of several books, including The Imago Sequence and Other Stories, Swift to Chase, and Blood Standard. Currently, Laird Barron lives in the Rondout Valley of New York State and is at work on tales about the evil that men do. Laird, welcome. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me on. I was just just now reading that bio. I was thinking, you know, that's kind of horror writers. It's sort of what we do, right? We we study the evil that men do and apply it and regurgitate it as best we can. So I wanted to get into it for those who may not know a lot of your experience. You know, you started in, I would say, I guess the the mid list field, publishing field. You started with Nightshade with your first two collections. You did a lot of short story work, a lot of essay work. You wrote a couple novels. And then uh, a, you know, a few years ago, you wrote a trilogy for Putnam, which was a big five publisher, the Blood Standard, Black Mountain, Worst Angels trilogy, which is fantastic. You know that. I love it. So one of the things I wanted to ask you for the writers who are listening is if you could sort of talk a little bit about how you first broke in and what your experiences, what your initial experience was like you know, when you first started publishing. You bet. I, I had been writing for many, many years. It started when I was just a baby almost. And, um, but I seriously, and I took a little hiatus uh, when I was living up in Alaska and racing sled dogs and whatnot. It took years from writing every day. I used to write through my youth. I wrote almost every single day. And um, I decided, you know, I, this is something I want to do professionally. And so I was around 28, 29 years old. And uh, I wrote a novel. And it turned out to be a Trump novel, but while it was on on submission, back in those days, you you know you were shipping out. This this was a th- you know like an eight hundred page novel, so it was a big fat stack of manuscript, and I was sending it out. I decided to work on poetry and short fiction to kind of de stress, mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote a story called Shiva, Open Your Eye, which is basically a, a send up of Lovecraft, and I sent it to a handful of places, you know, and that was back in the days when it was pretty much, once again, mail. You'd ship something and, and then forget about it. Right. And email, it was just starting to get kind of popular with some of the editors, but most of them still weren't using it. But I sent it to a few places. And what happened is I either received no response, some rejections, and it was lost. Uh, writers of the future, I submitted, submitted it to them. They lost it. I submitted it to Space and Time. And Gordon Linzer, really, really nice guy. He goes, oh, I, you know, I think I think I lost that or I never saw it. Send it again. And I was sort of dejected. And this all happened actually over a short period of time. So like about a six or eight month stretch. 
which I think a lot of writers today would go, oh my God, six or eight months. But, um, you know, for me, that was a short period of time. And I was walking home one day, I was living in Seattle and I saw a, a magazine, like a digest in the gutter and it was in a mud puddle. Somebody had dropped their copy of fantasy and science fiction, which I had heard of, but I thought I didn't, you know, I hadn't read it in years. I didn't know it was still publishing. And one of the only pages that was readable was the, was the submission guidelines in the back of the, of the digest. So I said, huh, they aren't going to, you know, like this, but I'll send it to them anyway. And about two weeks later, I got a, a note from Gordon Van Gelder, who was the, who had just purchased the magazine that he was, was sending me a check and would be sending me edits. And so that's, that's how I broke in. That's amazing. So fate sort of stepped in. <laughs> your guardian angel dropped the magazine in your path. Yeah. And fantasy and science fiction is no joke. That's a that's sort of like the high end, you know, the holy grail for a lot of uh, for a lot of writers. It remains to this day, you know, a highlight of my publishing career, just prestige wise. Yeah, that's a magazine that the Dark Tower was uh, serialized in. Um, I believe excerpts of Dune were in mm. there. You know, all the greats have been in it: Radbury and Block and Zelazny. I mean, you name it, right? They're Wilhelm. So. I didn't realize just how difficult it was to get in there. And what Gordon told me, I said, well, I'm really surprised you took that because the style is a little different than what you might expect to sell to them. And he said, well, I bought it because I wanted to see what your, your next one would be like. He said, sometimes people quit after they get rejected. He goes, it was good enough to publish. And I really wanted to see what the hell you would follow it up with. So I wanted to give you some encouragement, professional encouragement. That's amazing. And then at what point did, after you made that first sale, at what point did you transition to, or, you know, make that deal with Nightshade to do uh, the first collection? Well, and this is sort of instructive, I think, for people just starting out. Gordon said, selling the second one's the heart is, is the difficult one. Yeah. Which, right. I've heard other editors say that. So you can sell me this first piece of fiction, if, you know, especially if you're kind of new and I love it, but selling me the next one is not as easy. And so I always thought that was... I lived in, I won't say fear, but that, I brooded over that as years went by. <laughs> right. Did they give you any rationale for that, uh, for why this, because uh, I would think, you know, the logic would be like, oh, well, now I'm familiar with this writer. I'm more, maybe more apt to publish them, but that's interesting that that's not the case. I think there is, I think that there's some truth to that too. I think it's one of those deals where, you know, this is a show about advice, right? Right. Like there really is no such thing as general advice. There's only things that work for you and opinions that you have that other people uh, may agree with and other and some won't. But the thing is, is um, he lives by that. I mean, he's, you know, from my understanding, he's rejected Stephen King. So, I mean, it's just. Yeah. Infamously, I think. Jeff Vandermeer to this day pulls out whatever hair he has left complaining that he could never get published there. And Jeff Vandermeer is, you know, a world-class writer. So sometimes it just is difficult to sell your style to an editor. I mean, it's something that we all have to face is that it's not always about you. It could be about the editor or the publisher as much as anything else. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's an important point to talk about because, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of young writers feel when they are sending submissions out and getting rejected over and over and over again is like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my writing? What's, you know, what's, what's wrong with the stories. And to your point, so much of it, it, I mean, it obviously it's so subjective on an editor by editor basis, and it's not always you. You know, it could be another editor could love it. It's the same thing with publishing a novel. You know, there's all those infamous stories about how many times <laughs> Harry Potter was rejected or whatever, and there's, there's going to be one editor who gets it. 
So yeah, so I think that's important for writers because it is frustrating and it's it can be, you know, daunting and you kind of feel like maybe giving up or whatever, but you have to remember this guy doesn't like it, maybe this other person will. And so how did you get into Nightfire? I mean, Nightshare, Nightshade, sorry. I got Nightfire in the brain. So basically what happened is we had moved, uh, my, my SO and I had moved up to Olympia, Washington State, and we were just trying to save money. And so we were both working two jobs a lot of the time. And so writing was like the third thing. And I could only write in the evenings. And, and I've never been a, a fast writer. Uh, I've never been prolific. So I was writing one or two stories a year. Luckily, I started selling them. You know, I experienced some rejection, but pretty much after I sold the first story, I was able to start, uh, and lucky for me, because I was only writing one or two a year, I was able to sell like four or more to fantasy and science fiction. And then Ellen reprinted a story called Old Virginia in her year's best. And that really helped my visibility with fans, but also, you know, it's just, it's like anything else, success breeds success. So if one editor that's respected mm -hmm. is taking your work, especially a handful of stories, that just makes everything easier. So, I, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. And then what happened after um, about six years of this, basically, I started thinking about, well, I've got enough stories for a collection. I really would like to have a book. And then it turned out that Kelly Lank and uh, Mick Mamatos and a handful of other people, behind, you know, writers behind the scenes, had been advocating for me to nightshade. Right. I came on board with them about the same time that Batchy Galupi thrust them to prominence and sort of, but the deal also sort of doomed them because they didn't handle the finances correctly, which we won't go into. But the point being is it was, you know, we're talking about it. They were doing like 40 books a year and on every awards list. And, and, and some of the authors were selling, you know, making good money. So, so it was actually, it wasn't quite the same thing as being published by the big five, but it was definitely about like being published by one of their imprints. And yeah. And there was no, it's another thing. Now there was no expectation from the publisher that they communicated. They even sat me down and said, look, collections don't do well. You're a new author. This is pretty trippy stuff. We love it. That's why we're publishing it. We don't care if it sells. We can have some loss leaders. We want to publish it because we really feel like this kind of stuff needs to get published. And so we have one or two a year we can do. And then it sold and um, it sold out. It's it's still in print to this day. Yeah. And it's a, and old Virginia is, correct me if I'm wrong, the first story. Actually, I think, I think Shiva's the first story, but then old Virginia. I don't think so. I think it's old Virginia. Don't make me go to my shelf. It's unfortunately it's downstairs. I can't look. You know, it's funny. You start you write enough and you you're right. It's old Virginia. I had them back. <laughs> I don't even know what my book has in it. What what which brings up another interesting point. So a lot of questions that I see battered around when an author first sells a collection, you know, the the issue of like, well, how do you pick what stories? And then also how do you pick the order? And and you've now done a few story collections. You've you know did a Mago sequence. You did Occultation. You did Swift to Chase. And you have I'm, I think I know you I know you're working on a new one, two it, two new ones. So has your perspective changed as to how you decide what stories you put into a collection and 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 do you worry about the order like a like an album? Are you okay with people reading in any order? Or you want them to read it from like Billie Eilish? You got to go. You got to start at the you got to start at the top. <laughs> uh, what's your what's your yeah. philosophy on that on that side of things? Well, it evolved, certainly. Initially, I had no say. I didn't have any say. And I, I didn't fight for it either. I was just happy to be, I'm just happy to be here. Really? Interesting. No, they, they pretty much decided how it was going to go. But the second, everything after that, the other three collections have all been mine. And, and that's a no deal for me. And it's, you would have to give me a lot of money for me to give up that. 
And so the bottom, the bottom line is it is extremely important. I've spent many hours of my life with the last three collections determining what stories and what order. And, you know, initially the first couple of collections, it was pretty much everything that I had written. Right. But more and more with the third and the fourth, I have other stories that didn't make it in. And now with these two, the, the contemporary collection that I'm going to hand in any day and the fantasy collection, which is another year or two away from being complete, I will have a surplus. Like I will literally, I have enough leftover material even after these two collections do a third or, you know, another whole collection on its own. So, so obviously that's all changed. So now I, I, it's a lot more difficult. I have to decide what goes in then what goes where, but as far as arranging it, yeah, album, that's a pretty pertinent to how I do it. I take my cue from, how classic albums, you know, how sort of not necessarily famous albums, but, but albums that I really respect the craft that went into the theme and then how, how the compositions were rearranged, how they bleed into one another, the intro, the outro, the overall effect, the ramifying elements of this song, that song, the next song, the mood breaks, you know, that kind of a thing. It's, it's kind of like if you're a DJ, you know, you have, yeah. if, if you're a good DJ, you know when to break the tempo down and have a, have, have a slow song. And if you have a theme to your music, then you want it to build to something. And to that effect, I have written almost every single story over the last 20 years with the idea of how it's going to fit into an eventual collection. Interesting. And it's not just that it's the tone of the story, but it's also like the word count. For me, I like to have like, okay, you've just read three longer stories. Let me, let's, let me give you some, let me give you some easy ones uh, or whatever. And then we can kind of ramp back up to maybe doing, you know, some sort of finale. Do you, do you worry about length at all? Or you, is it more just like tone and. No, no, all of it, all of it's important, but I I will, I will say, uh, especially with Swift to Chase and then my current contemporary horror. So I have a lot of other problems with it, not problems, but considerations and challenges because not only do I have to worry about theme and breaking up uh, the rhythm through either word count or point of view. That's another thing that I do. And you can't, the, the problem is, is that when you have a whole bunch of variables that you're, that you're trying to account for, you can't defend all fronts. You, you, you have to kind of triage. You have to kind of focus on, well, these are the important, these are the top three important elements to the collection. Take care of these. And then to a lesser degree, shuffle the other uh, stories around. So the length would be probably the second or third consideration where theme and atmosphere are the most important. Like if I, mm-hmm. my current collection that I'm working on has like three or four stories that featured Jessica Mace or her cohorts, I kind of have them in the working manuscript kind of together. So they flow. Yeah. So they're not broken up and scattered throughout the whole collection. They're all kind of um, in one section at this point in one section of the book. And they're different enough that they actually, there's variation within those stories that satisfy the thematic. So it's a long-winded way of just saying, yeah, I, I worry a lot. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And one thing that I learned from my first collection to my second collection, it's very common practice for whatever reason. It's like, here's all these stories, and now I'm going to end it with this big new novella. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like the anchor or whatever. And I think the rationale behind that is, is because a lot of your readers may have already read a lot of the stuff. So they want the new, the big new novella to be at the end. So that, you know, people want to keep going. I don't know. I don't know what the rationale is, but that seems to be the common practice. But one of the things that I found that was a little frustrating for me was short story collections are read very slowly. People pick them up and put them down, you know, on like a novel where they're more apt to just kind of barrel through. Some of the feedback I was getting from my first collection was that people weren't even getting to the big new novella. 
they just, you know, it would take very, very long time. And so when I did the new one, I put the new novellas at the beginning because I was like, no, I want to get, I want this stuff to be what people get into right away because it's, it's the big new story that I wrote. Is that something that you've run into where people are like, well, we want like a big new story at the end or has that come up with at all with your, with your collections? No. And my viewpoint has evolved on that. Part of it is a function that, that we as authors are too close to our own work. We're too inside our own heads. Even our most obsessed fans seldom have read everything that we've written. Right. I would say there's lots of people who still haven't read, who are big fans of mine, who haven't read all of my early stories. So I no longer worry about that even a little. Yes, there's going to be, there's always going to be the fan, and God bless them, that has read everything, collected everything, and is going to notice that. But by and large, you're just lucky people even have heard of half your stories. So mm. I, I actually always plan to put at least one original story in there. But I do that actually just for that really rarefied group of fans who have supported me so much that they've read everything years before it gets collected. Uh, it's for them only, really. And so I, I really don't think that there's that actually that big a deal, even having anything new in a collection, by and large. You can have a complete reprint of collection. I'm going to say at least half to two thirds of the audience, especially if you're not Stephen King or Neil Gaiman or something. People haven't read all those stories. They're waiting for the collection to come together so they can read. They don't have to track them all down. Yeah. And I, and one of the things that was interesting to me was when I published my first collection, that publisher had a very specific take on, well, at least this, you have to have at least this many original stories. And then when I got my first agent, they were like, all your stories should be re, should be reprints because people because there's a people will want to read them or I can't remember what her rationale was and the, you know so I've heard different takes on it so it's kind of interesting I think I think to your point it's ultimately I think up to the it should be, at least be up to the writer to say well this is the these are the stories that are important to me these are the stories I want in the book and this is the order I want them to be in because there's a there's a method to the madness and it's a and it's an album not a single you know what I mean right. And by the way, I, uh, just a plug because I'm looking at it. Tall Hat Press released a book, which I'm going to send to you, Laird, to sign for me. A complete bibliography on Laird Barron's short stories, 2000 to 2020. So it's a it's a very cool guide to like for those completionists out there, those Laird Barron completionists, to find every story. I know that's what I'm doing. So it's a lot of fun. I'm I'm actually using it as a reference guide. Uh, <laughs> I bet to my you know my copyright history page for my next collection because I'm like I've, I've been trying to look all that up I'm like oh god where did I first publish this or that it's even got like your like what award the word count the awards all the all the different places it was published and reprinted it's so cool uh -huh. no you know and one one last thing about the collection the order author plan author plans and then the gods laugh we have no control over what order people read things people want to read the last story first they will and that's and, and it shouldn't matter the order and stuff like that is just you bake a cake and you frost it and you put you, you put all the decorations on it and and then people eat it however they want to eat it and that's not your that's really not your concern right and i want to get into a little bit i mentioned it at the beginning you published three novels with putnam and very you know, briefly, I don't want, you know, I know it's a lot, it's a, it's a loaded question, but what are your kind of like top level takeaways from when you worked working with Putnam versus working with, you know, some of the other publishers you work with, such as Nightshade or Journal Stone? I mean, was it a completely different experience? Was it completely different? And here's the deal in broad strokes, there are specific exceptions to this because small press is at its worst when it tries to emulate 
the boilerplate and kind of methodology of the big press. Yeah. And by that, I mean, they want to keep your rights forever, that kind of thing. When small presses do that, they're, they're completely contradicting what makes them even attractive to, to a, especially if somebody has been around for a while. I have no reason to publish with a small press if they don't, if they're not going to give me my rights back right. or work with me on the cover or some of the concessions that, that they'll make because you work hand in hand where a big publisher's like, look, we're going to send out 50,000 copies of this, you know, go to hell. <laughs> but the most important difference is besides having a more collaborative relationship with small press, uh, which is an advantage, you know, point to them. Point to the big press is the editing is pretty much unparalleled as, as far as the attention your, your, your books get. Mm-hmm. When you're working with a small press, you may be really lucky, right? And they're working with Alan Datlow or somebody. And, and so you'll be taken care of. But usually you're going to work with the editor who may or may not, or excuse me, the publisher who may, may or may not really be a qualified editor. And even if they do hire an editor, it's going to be like one person. When I worked with Putnam, it was the acquiring editor did the initial like developmental edit and some line editing. Then the assistant editor added more line editing and then at least one copy editor and a proofreader and then my agent. Wow. Well, you can, how you compete with that? And it wasn't overcooking it. It wasn't a bunch of people arguing over what should, no, it was just more eyes on your book. You know, hey, look, we found this other other issue. Do you want to change this? Do you not want to change it? That type of thing. So I was asked several years ago, why don't readers trust self-publishing as much as they do uh, traditional publishing? I said, outside of just, you know, cliche, you know, cliches and myths, I said, the, the real tangible reason or the real substantial reason is because you maybe hire an editor to, to go over your manuscript if the reader's lucky, you did that. Where a traditional publishing, you have anywhere from one to five editors. You have a whole team of people going over your over your manuscript. And from a polish perspective, professional formatters, professional cover, you know, and not to say that that all can't, you know, mistakes still come through. You still get crappy covers, et cetera. But all things, just sort of like in the aggregate, you cannot compete with the amount of pressure that's brought to bear, with the amount of tools that are brought to bear by a big publishing team. And so both have their points, but those are the two major points. Yeah. And that's such a big thing because, you know, when you're writing a hundred thousand word story, you're going to make mistakes and, and you can you know read it again and again and again and again. But the reality is after a while, and you mentioned this earlier, you can no, you no longer see the forest for the trees. You're just, the words are blurring and you can't really, you have to know that ability to sort of take a step back and be like, okay, let me look at this with fresh eyes. And that's why it's big. I think to your point, if you're a new writer, if you're self-publishing, or even if you're using a, a, a small independent publisher, make sure you're getting a good proofread. You don't want to put a manuscript out there with a bunch of errors in it. I think that's one of the things that really turns readers off. They want to make sure that it looks like you at least put in the effort to make it you know, readable. Uh, we're running a little bit over, but I wanted to ask you, because it's one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, your short story process. And I know that's a difficult subject, but one of the things that's always impressed me personally as a reader of yours is when I read stories that are basically, you know, are basically not as a novel's worth of content that you could probably have easily have stretched if you'd wanted to, but you condense it into, you know, a novella or even like just like, you know, a novelette length story. And I'm curious when you come up with an idea and you're going to write something, do you have an idea in your head of like, this story is going to be, you know, 5,000 words, this story is going to be 15,000 words. And at any point, are you worried about the, like, are you worried about like the, the end, the end result of the story as far as length is concerned, or is it just like, this is the story and I'm telling it and where it ends, 
where it ends up, it ends up. A uh, little of column A, a little of column B. I'm at, the, at this point now, though, I can pretty much, I decide what length of story I want to write. It, I'm sure it's like filming, the different type, if you're filming a TV show. Right. Uh, whether it's a, a four, you know a forty three minute show or whether it's a twenty two minute show or whether it's a HBO and you're you're reffing and you can do an hour and a half show, but the point is is that I look at the I look at the call the commission I look at the upper word limit and then of course I also tack on can I get you know if I had to go twenty percent over what would that look like and then I can just look at the maximum word length and go all right I can tell this story that story the other story there's the three lengths of stories that I could tell with within that length. But that said, yeah, I, I kind of probably have a weird process in that regard because I think a lot of people just go, well, this cool idea for a story and they sit down and they write it and they write it until it's done. Right. A lot of times uh, I, I will do that too. That, that obviously happens. But I try not to be enslaved by my, I, I, I consider that almost like a handcuff. Like, no, I tell you how long the story is going to be. You're not, there's not some mystical ethereal being telling me how long the story is going to be. There is no such thing as, as far as I'm concerned, really, was only this long and no longer. I'm like, yeah, but what would it look like if Joe Lansdale wrote it and it was twice as long? Or what if I was drunk and I, I cut it off even shorter? What would it look like then? So I decide to some degree uh, as, the, as the creator about what I want to write. And, uh, and, I, and I've gotten really good at creating stories that I can tell in an hour or 40 minutes or 22 minutes. Yeah, because when you have a, you know, when a story is commissioned, for an anthology, they, you know, the editor will give you like, you know, a word count limit um, or, you know, a, a range that they want to hit. And yeah, it's interesting. So you say, well, if you want 5,000 words, then you're not going to get this idea. You're going to get that idea. Well, even that, I, I, even that I don't let that, I've actually practiced taking any concept and making it fit within my word count range. Really? Interesting. So in other words, if I, I I've taken and, this goes to another thing. I don't hold back ideas, except rarely. I, I shouldn't say I don't. I rarely hold back ideas. If I have a good idea mm -hmm. for a story and I want to write it, I write it. I don't go, oh, I should write a novel or ooh, it should be something else. I go, no, I want to sit down and write this story. And, and consequently, I have written multiple, I've written about 70 something stories now and or published 70 something stories. And at least five or six of those were novels that I just said, nope, this is going to be a 5,000 word story or a 10,000 word story or a novella. I have to I have to admit I'm kind of the opposite where I was like, you know what? I think this could actually be a novel, so I'm gonna hold on to it. But you know, but that's that's because you're smart. <laughs> okay. Let's just get that let's get that out of the way. But, you're bright. But but I but you know, but and to that point, but I remember, you know, you and I have talked ad nauseum about Hand of Glory. And like that is uh, you know, that's a not only could that be a novel, it could be a trilogy, uh, just with the amount of content that is in that that novella length story. So, um, and I think it's great. And I, and, and actually, you know, reading a lot of your work, I've practiced that myself, which is like, I'm not going to hold back. I have written a couple of things and you, you read a story I wrote recently that hasn't been published yet where I was like, you know what? I don't think it's, it's a novel worth of ideas, but I really want to, I really want it to be a story, a short story. And I think it ended up being 10,000 words, uh, the, my detective story. And and, um, and yeah. that, but I went into it with that attitude and it was, and I was thinking about some of your work when I did, cause I was like, I want to write, I want to have a lot going on and I don't want to necessarily have to linger on each point. I just want to kind of like get it all in there. And I think that's a lot of fun for readers because they feel like they're reading a novel's worth of content, you know, in an hour and a half or whatever, I think is a cool, a cool practice. 
it comes from I, I I have to give it up to the old school, the classic science fiction writers and some of the fantasists too, but they did paperback no, you know, paperbacks that were very short yet dense. And they wrote it was very common for them to write, or even Zelazny could write a novel and a short story. And there's many ways to do it. I just enjoy and I don't do it every time, obviously, but that is one of the tools in the old toolbox is to is to write stories like that. And I have to credit the old school writers who were who were writing a lot and they were writing at various lengths. They they just you would sit down and write Harlan Ellison's another example. Yeah. You know, he wrote novels and stories or 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 things that felt like chapters, self-contained chapters out of out of novels and because the whole world was implied, right? Uh, the whole universe in some cases. So I, I credit those guys. Um, and on that tip, cause we're going to wrap it up. I've gone a little bit over, but I wanted to ask about off the top of your head, who were a couple of writers that you would uh, steer new writers toward to say, this is a great example of a guy who knows how to write a short story or, or gal. I apologize. There's, uh, actually Kelly link would be somebody that I think is is probably one of the greats, mostly you know horror and, and kind of fantasy or weird fiction. Uh, Zola- Roger Zelazny is probably my most the, the author who has the most influence on me. My name is Legion. I, I suggest people go out and pick that up. It's actually three three novellas, uh, Link novellas. Um, uh, Kelly Link, Magic for Beginners. You, know, you can't go wrong with that. So those would be two. And maybe Jack, you know, Jack Vance's Dying Earth would be another one to give you more of a Baroque style. So if you looked at those three, they cover such a spectrum, but yet work within the same, you know, same field. I really think that you couldn't go wrong with those guys. All right. Well, listen, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on. Uh, this has been an awesome chat and hopefully writers and readers who are listening got some good experience points from you and, and can apply it to, to what they're doing. So as of right now, just as a walk away plug, do, is there anything coming up that people should be looking out for from you or is it in process? I know you said you had the one collection that was almost ready to go, right? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to hand that in. So but there's nothing, you know, nothing definitive about when when it's coming out. Uh, but I do have stories coming out. Uh, I, I have one coming out in Alan Datlow horror anthology with uh, Nightfire, I believe, uh, coming out. Oh. And I also have uh, a really weird horror science fiction story coming out uh, in an anthology. That's um, Screams from the Dark, uh, Ellen's anthology. And then I have one coming out this fall uh, with uh, Titan. Cox is editing that. And it's uh, it's called The Isolation and Horror Anthology. That's great. All right, Laird. Well, thank you very much again. And uh, we will talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. 
What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.